Um, I think, Muriel, one of the things that, that does very much uh, colour and characterise the life of elves, obviously, is, from the title itself, a sense of magic. And you use a more beautiful word than that um, in conversation with me. The other day, you used the word enchantment. And I'm wondering whether enchantment is something that you experienced as a child, and if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood. Ah, yes, of course. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, first of all, thank you uh, for joining. And please, I have to apologize in advance for my English accent mistakes. So I shall do my best, but I, uh, I have to ask you to be benevolent. <laughs> little French, I am. They look, they they look benevolent. <laughs> and I know Caroline speaks perfect French, so she can help me if I'm getting lost in the, in the question. So... Uh, Thank you. Uh, my childhood, well, I think it's a fair question because it has a lot to do with all my books that has been inspired by episodes or topics of my childhood, and enchantment is for sure one of them. I was lucky enough to spend my childhood in a very beautiful countryside of France, and God knows how it is a beautiful countryside uh, in general, everywhere in France, but... I grew up in the Noir Valley. I don't know if you, some of you have been there, the region of the castles of uh, France, uh, of the kings of France. And if they build their castles there, it's because the climate is wonderful, because the night is amazing, and the wine is extremely good, <laughs> which helps as well to enjoy life. Uh, but So when I was a child, I grew up in the countryside, and uh, it was a time when my parents would let me go the whole day biking with my little girlfriends uh, from the village, and they didn't care uh, about us being far away from home. I don't think it would be possible mm. uh, nowadays, that freedom that I had. So I would spend my own weekends and evenings in the trees, uh, in the woods, uh, biking along the paths of, uh, of this beautiful uh, region and uh, swimming <coughs> in the river. And I think it has, been, uh, it has shaped me in a way, because I've kept from that not only a sense of enchantment, as children can feel it when they are, when they are in tune with nature, but also a, a sense of beauty. Mm. I'm absolutely sure that my first ecstasies, artistic ecstasies, are linked with the beauty of nature and are linked with the extraordinary uh, harmony of the visual paintings that nature and landscapes can sometimes uh, offer. And do you think, Muriel, that um, being an only child also contributed to that in some way? Uh, we're, we're both only children and we've talked only very fleetingly about this once. Mm -hmm. But I'm, I'm just thinking that sometimes when you're an only child, you're not interrupted all the time and buffeted by siblings who are sort of you know, encroaching on your, your sense of the world. Do you think it made a difference for you being an only child? Well, it's a good question because I regret it for very long that I didn't have a brother or a sister and I felt a bit lonely sometimes, especially in the dark periods. But uh, this is true and maybe this is why I was reading outside. I, was, I would take books with me and read and I was not disturbed. So maybe I got that uh, dreamy personality lost in dreams and in fiction from that. Yeah, maybe you did. Yeah. Um, how do you think, though, it's much harder once you become an adult to retain that sense of enchantment? I mean, we all, to some extent, may have felt something similar, maybe not quite 
um, as intensely as you just expressed. But as you go out into the world as an adult, that sense of magic is, um, is knocked about a little bit. It can be brutalized by the real world. How have you gone about protecting that sense of enchantment? By reading. By reading. And this is why I guess I decided or decided. I decided. I don't decide usually, but this is why maybe I, I started uh, writing. Uh, well, there are children in my novels, in all my novels, and I, uh, I was not aware of it until the moment when the book was released in France, the last book, The Life of Ends, was released in France. The journalist asked me why again girls of that age in a novel and I hadn't realized that it was the case because for me it's a completely different story and adventure and another period of my life and another moment of, of my journey and uh, I think it's, uh, it's because I'm fascinated by the topic of innocence mm. and by the, uh, the feeling that I have lost some innocence and that we are losing uh, in a sense all the time because there are a lot of first times that will never come back and that some uh, how do you say émerveillement? oh well sense of wonder sense of wonder that we had uh, they are fading or they are vanishing or, and uh, I, I remember that when I was very young I already was uh, finding it again, in books mm. that would preserve what I was not able to maintain in life, because I had, like everybody else, to face all the challenges of adult life or teen, teenage. And so, uh, very naturally, it is the, I think this is the reason why I started to write to maintain, not to restore an innocence that is lost forever. I have to accept it. We have to take it, I guess. But to try to maintain this sense of enchantment that was linked with it and that I think we can maintain with art and fiction. Mm. But it's interesting that this journalist pointed out to you that all your books um, feature children, which indeed they do. But I was um, very intrigued to discover that when you originally wrote The Elegance of the Hedgehog, you concentrated exclusively on the concierge yes, figure yes. and that Paloma, the little girl, the very precocious little girl who intends to commit suicide at the age of 13 rather than face the mediocrity that she thinks is a certainty of, of life, she, she came much, much later yes. into the draft and yet her voice is so strong, it's equal. So, so you were not thinking about her at all initially, were you? No, no, she just appeared when I had written already, I don't know, 70% of the, uh, the of René's part, of the concierge part, and there was a little girl knocking at the door of the, of the lodge. The, um, uh, well, of, of the lodge. The place where the, the concierge stays in the, almost in the basement of the building, this obscure place. And uh, this little girl was knocking. She was the sister of one of the, the residents, the inhabitant of the, of the building. And uh, I remember at that moment, my ex-husband told me, oh, she's nice. She looks like you. You should give her a voice. And that was <laughs> so true that I gave her a voice and I started, I came to the beginning. Uh, and I had to intertwine chapters with her in the chapters that were already written. And then there was a point when they met and I could finish the book. 
That's extraordinary. Um, let's go back for a moment. Let's take a step back, though, because there's a book of yours that I think most of us will not be familiar with, me included, uh, Gourmet Rhapsody, yes. which is relevant because food <laughs> is a theme in the life of elves uh, and food that is very um, related to medicine in particular, the sort of health-giving pro- properties of food appear in this book. But can you tell us a little bit about Gourmet Rhapsody and what prompted you to write that? Because you had started a career as a teacher. You were not going to be a writer. No, and a teacher of philosophy, yeah. which was maybe a dead end. But this, I realized it long after, and after I had written two novels, and that I had the possibility to escape, uh, to escape philosophy and to <laughs> devote fully to writing. And when it was a very small first novel, and it's the story of a gastronomical critic who is dying, and on his uh, deathbed... He's trying to remember a flavor from his childhood, once again. A flavor, and he thinks that this flavor could save him from all the trespasses of his life, because we find out that he was not such a good man. And he's trying desperately to find a line to his heart that he has lost years ago when he betrayed the boy he was. So it takes 140 pages so that he finds out finally what is this, uh, this uh, uh, dish that he was so uh, eagerly trying to remember. What is the dish? Uh, should I say it? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, he, he's exploring his memory and he, he's trying to remember beautiful things, he, he, what delicious things he has eaten and what his grandmother would prepare for him and what he ate when he was uh, already a young critic, extraordinary dinners. And uh, I borrowed uh, the, the menu of a three-star chef uh, in France to describe uh, that a meal that was extraordinary. But in the end, he finds out that his memory is the one of Chouquette. I, it's very French. Uh, it's a choux. A choux, do you mean pastry or a cabbage? But pastry. Oh, pastry, choux pastry. <laughs> okay. Well, no, it's, uh, yeah, I should have said that it was sweet. <laughs> With knitten uh, um, grains of sugar that are very crispy and in the mouth, and nothing inside, no cream, no, it's just the shoe like this. And what he finds out is that it's not the perfect chouquette that he is so much missing, but the one of the supermarket, a bit spongy, a bit, um, a bit, it glues, well, it's, it's not good, but this is his heart. And he understands that he has betrayed all that, and then I kill him and eat that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm used to do that usually. (laughs) That sounds very satisfying indeed. Now, food did did figure in your thinking when you were creating um, the the two girls who are at the centre of the life of elves. Um, And I was just wondering whether you could could talk a little bit about the two little girls in the book and Mm -hmm. the gifts that they have and how that relates to food in the case of one of them. So there are two main characters in this book, in this new book, and again, there are little girls. There are ten when it uh, starts. And I will start with the second one, because this is the way it happens when I write, and I think many of my uh, colleagues as well. 
I meet some characters, and then I know that I want to spend a few years, a few months, or a few years with them. And I meet them unexpectedly, exactly as it happens in life, exactly as a true meeting happens, but not so often, which explains maybe that I don't write so often. We'll come back to that. Yes, I know, so I'm preparing the, <laughs> the answer. And so uh, the first little girl I met, her name is Clara, and she lives in a beautiful part of Italy called Abruzzo, which is not very known and very famous, so it is quite close to Rome. And it's an extraordinarily beautiful region of mountains, uh, completely remote. Nobody gets any interest in that part of Italy because there is nothing, no... Uh, no, there are no resources and the people there are quite poor and they are dealing with a, a hard life mm. and so this little girl Clara lives there she has been adopted because nobody knows who are her parents by the priest of the village and she lives with the priest and an old housekeeper who tells her stories and she has a gift, a wonderful gift. Uh, she learns how to play piano in one hour. One day a piano is delivered to the church and she learns how to play piano in one hour. But it's not only that she's extremely virtuous. Virtuosic. Virtuosic. But that when she plays, uh, people can see, she can see and then convey that to others, she can see uh, landscapes and she can touch the heart of the people. So this is the first girl with this extraordinary musical gift. And then I met another one when I had written this little thing, wondering what was going on, but already loving this pure, lonely, gifted uh, Girl, I met another one, her name is Maria, and she's an orphan as well, and she has been left on the porch of a farm in Burgundy, which is a region of France that I love very much as well, because I, I lived there when I was a young teacher, and for four years, I lived in this beautiful countryside, and like the Noir Valley, this is a countryside with m much more harshness, very rigorous winters, um, it's uh, um, a sort of there is a sort of aridity or toughness in this uh, part of uh, the countryside but it's also extremely poetic mm -hmm. because it's full of hills and uh, vegetation is extraordinary and trees are very diverse and beautiful and woods are full of game and, uh, and also uh, good wine, I see a theme yes, <laughs> there is a pattern yes <laughs> Yes. Obviously, and this is one reason why I love that region that much. You're absolutely right, because this is what I love most uh, of my country, of course, literature, but also food. And in this way, I don't betray my bread. <laughs> and so I met Maria, and she has, a, she has another kind of gift, but in a way, they, they are matching together. She has an extraordinary deep connection with nature, and she can... Uh, she can exchange with trees and with animals and understand them and they understand her and we, we understand quite fast uh, most in the first pages that she helps the region where she lives to blossom and to, uh, to have a very prosperous uh, time 
Now, you, you touched on the Abruzzo there. You did actually go there, and you had some encounters there which helped your, your mm. little girl sort of mature, I, I guess, as an idea. So you, you were very charmed by the region and the food, and you did talk to a cook, didn't you? <laughs> actually, I lived in Amsterdam for a few years, and there I met an Italian man who was a cook, who is already uh, still a cook, uh, his name is Giancarlo Giaratti, and I used his name for one character of the novel because it was a very nice meeting. And he gave me a book by him of recipes of Abruzzo, of this part of uh, Italy. And I was amazed, not by the recipes, because it was in Dutch and I couldn't read it. <laughs> and I would never be able to learn Dutch anyway. But uh, I was amazed by the beauty of the photos of Abruzzo that were in between the, the recipes, especially because I think that was a place, according to my heart, one of these places where you have the feeling that it's a sort of primitive nature and a preserved nature where I guessed, I hoped, I could have what I'm looking for on the time. I could have this feeling that it was the first morning of the world. Hmm. So I went there and John Carlos set a gastronomical tour for my husband and I, so that was not uh, unpleasant. <laughs> and in the end of the, of the trip, uh, we were in a bed and breakfast, he had recommended to us, and uh, the young and beautiful woman who was uh, the owner of the bed and breakfast, who came from the city, who was a lawyer there and decided to live in that countryside, uh, gave me a book. She knew me. She, she had read my uh, books in Italian, my former books in Italian. She knew who I was. And she gave me as a present an extraordinary book. It was uh, written by a journalist who had listened for hours and was trying to transmit it, uh, who had listened for hours um, to a, um, a shepherd, a shepherd of Abruzzo, an old shepherd now because he must be almost uh, a century or maybe 90 something and he, he was telling his life and he was telling the life of Paolino the shepherd and I cannot understand Italian just a few words but I cannot read it but I just opened the book and there were pictures of an old world that is now disappearing because it will disappear little by little. These are they are witnesses of a time that is gone. And beautiful photos of the farm of his mother, the wedding of uh, his mother. Uh, the, the, well, it was very evocative and very moving. But more. I opened the book. I cannot read Italian, but I could see that in the book there were poems that this shepherd was a poet, and that when between earth and sky in the slopes of Abruzzo, uh, just watching at his uh, sheep, he was alone, he would write poems, and it has moved me beyond possible, because I deeply believe in the connection between art and nature, and that contemplation of the world can lead to a poetic way of, uh, of living, even if you have nothing. And even if you own nothing. So that was my meeting with Paulino, the shipper, who's in the novel. He has uh, two paragraphs, but uh, I should be really grateful towards him. Mm. I get the sense, I think you might be getting the sense too, that 
um, that travel for Muriel is, is a very, very important source of inspiration. And you mentioned Amsterdam there, you mentioned Italy, you live in France, but there's another country that we do need to talk about because <laughs> it really does inform all of your writing, and that's Japan. Um, can you talk about when you first went to Japan and why Japan resonates for you and provides you with such um, sort of sustenance as a writer? The first time I went to Japan, uh, it's because my publishing house in France, before the release of The Engance of the Hedgehog, asked me uh, which, what kind of advance I wanted, and I said a couple of weeks in Kyoto. <laughs> no fancy hotels, no, 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 uh, you know, we, we want, but uh, I want to go there, uh, mostly because my ex-husband was in love with Japan since he was very young and fascinated by Japanese culture, and then I started to fall in love as well. But we knew very little. I had my first sushi at that time and was amazed. Uh, I was, of course, watching at the... Uh, at Japanese uh, movies, uh, including Osu's one, but not only Kurosawa, and, uh, and was more, more and more fascinated. And uh, very little I had seen from their uh, temples and gardens was making me think that it would be another layer of reality, and I really, really badly wanted to experience that. So I got the advance. And went there for uh, less than a couple of weeks. And then there was only one obsession, to go back there, which became possible because of the success of the book. And then I lived there for two years in, uh, in Kyoto. And it was, uh, it was really beyond my expectations. Uh, a lot of things were not the way I had in, uh, really uh, figured them. But what was beautiful was another level of beauty that what I had um, intuition when just looking at the pictures. And that level of beauty, Muriel, came from something very specific, didn't it? Because you've talked before about the, the way you respond to the beauty of the countryside in France and there you're and, and, and in Italy, and there you're responding to something that is um, wild. But really in Japan, it seems to me that what fascinated you was the interaction between the human and the natural and the way the Japanese mind could tailor and manicure and in some sense control nature. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, well, I love both. I love French countryside for its natural way of being a countryside. And I love Japanese gardens because they are incredibly artificial because when you go there, you know they have been designed millimeter by millimeter uh, with an idea of beauty that is very clear. Uh, but in both cases, I have the same feeling in different ways. I have the feeling that I am immersed, immersed. immersed in nature. And what is extraordinary with Japanese garden is that it's completely artificial especially dry gardens where there are only rocks or stones, a bit of moss, and then just one tree here and just one leaf that has fallen in the, in, the, in the sand, and you want to cry because it is absolutely, totally harmonious, visually and psychologically speaking. So you, you, you're amazed. So it's completely artificial. And at the same time, I never had 
except when I was a child and when I was connected with my beautiful countryside, I never had that feeling that I was absorbing the very essence of nature while looking at the garden around. So we're, we're straying now into a slightly kind of mystical zone. Um, and I'm just wondering whether you have a theory, because after all, you are a philosopher, you have taught philosophy. So I'm curious about whether you think that there is a reason why we sometimes have a deep affinity or connection with a place where we have no family, mm. no relatives, but we get to some places and we think, I feel at home here. I feel I belong here. Is that an aesthetic response that we're having when we do that? Are we just responding to overwhelming beauty or might there be something else going on? Well, well I don't know for others. For me, it has, it's a bit strange because it has evolved through time and I don't have the same longings I had when I was younger and I don't long exactly for the same of life or settings. But what I, want, what I would like to do in my life is to seek for places like this all the time, and I don't think for personal reason that I will never really feel home anywhere, and I envy people who can have this feeling. But now I understood that maybe I have to stop searching for a home, but just to keep looking for places where a part of me is uh, illuminated, and to connect all these uh, all these places, and of course that might be aesthetical, psychological, and it's a mix of all the layers of the of the strange beings we are. So we're at a festival called All About Women, and I'm just wondering whether there are women philosophers that you taught or that mm. you read um, when when that was your professional life in France that you could tell us about um, mm. that have been a particular influence on you? Well, as you know, the, the, the f- philosophy is a matter of men most of the time. And uh, if you look at the corpus, mm. uh, you, you see mostly uh, the great philosophers, at least uh, those who, have, uh, who we know and who have uh, uh, come through times, through ages to us, are men. But uh, when you ask me the question... I thought about a philosopher that I hadn't read for a very long time and that ha- has been extremely important for me. And I, and I have to thank you because I reread her lately just before coming here because we talked about her. And I'm amazed that ex- exactly at that moment of my life, in the kind of quest I am now, it's matching so beautifully, yeah. and I will tell you why. So it's Simone Weil. We have a politician with the same uh, yes. name, but it's not uh, the politician. It was remarkable as well, a remarkable woman. But the philosopher, she was born, I think, beginning of the century, last century, and she died in, uh, during the Second World War, it must be 43. When she was very young, she was 40, uh, 34 she, she was extremely young, and she was young, and she uh, she was very fragile. She had a very fragile uh, health, and before she she left France to go to the U.S. and then to uh, to England, uh, she gave her notes to someone who later on edited them. She's uh, well. I will try to put it short in a few words, but she's one of the most inspired, intense, pure, impossible. So, uh, as says this man, he had ever met. 
and she was uh, she's one of these very little uh, human beings that were so so burned by an inside frame that they they are obsessed by the goal of their life uh, but at the same time they shine in a way that is incredible even if that kings them and she was one of uh, one of them and her uh, her writing is beautiful and her texts are beautiful and one of them is called la pesanteur et la grâce which would be uh, on gravity and grace and the first sentence of that book which i read over thanks to you is uh, is broke my heart because she says that all i think when uh, in substance that Everything on earth is ruled, is governed by the laws of gravity, except for grace. I found this <laughs> wonderful. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm. Okay, so we're all going to go off and find an English <laughs> translation of Simone Weil. Um, I, I hope she is translated, yes. I don't know. She I don't must know. Be. I don't she know. Must be. Well, I read in French, so I have to say I didn't look for... <laughs> you, you taught philosophy at, um, at high school, at French lycée. And oh, just one year. One yeah. year. Yeah. But it's one of the curiosities of the French curriculum uh -huh. at the high school stage that philosophy is uh, a core subject and you do not have the option of opting out of it. No. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, having been put through that system myself, I'm wondering what you think the impact is on French children of being taught philosophy because, let's face it, when we start these courses at the lycée, we're very young. Yeah. We haven't really thought about the deep and meaningful questions about the meaning of life. We haven't really quite had an existential crisis yet. So what is the point of it, do you think? Well, I think it's just to... The, the, I think the most beautiful definition of philosophy, the one I really relate with, to with, Either. Either. English is like that. It gives you the choice. There are all these sneaky little words in the end of the... And I never know which one it is. We is too on. So, sorry. Uh, no, there, there is this fantastic definition, which I like. There are others that I like less, but which is... Philosophy, it is to try to uh, think your life and leave your thinking. Mm. And so it's just... A basic definition of wisdom and why wouldn't we start early <laughs> and it can be of course adapted to each age uh, what I didn't like when I was a teacher was that I had a program I had to teach them the great philosophers and texts that I thought were not relevant for young, uh, young boy and boys and girls of that age but each time I was closing the book And I was just starting discussion, trying not to make of it a chaotic discussion, but to organize it and to put it into uh, rational explanation. That was a success. And then we would go to the text as a possible answer to the... And uh, the, I think the principle is really good. The reality is a bit more complicated, but mm. as it is always. I wish I'd been taught philosophy by you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I was that good at that time. <laughs> so... So in that world, you're teaching, and, and obviously you're, you're, um, there's a gestation period there for the elegance of the hedgehog. What made you want to tackle, through the prism of literature and philosophy, the idea of class and snobbery in French society? 
but because I came from the countryside. And even if my parents were quite intellectual, I had been raised in a village and then in a very little town, a beautiful one as well. But so when I came to Paris to after the baccalaureate, uh, uh, yes, the baccalaureate is the sort of high school finishing exam. So after like, I finished high school, when I went to study in Paris, I met for the first time the the daughters and sons of the bourgeoisie. I don't know if you yeah you have this word obviously, <laughs> <laughs> and and some of them became good friends of mine because we were studying in, in the same uh, uh, preparation course for... Um, university. Yeah, for university. And it was a complete new world. And I was fascinated by the few I could see of their lives in Paris, in the fancy neighborhood with a lot of, uh, with a lot of influence and power and knowledge and frequentation of, uh, of art in the very different way of mine. Me, it was in books, and while my parents were traveling with me and bringing me to the museum, and when my grandfather would bring me to museums as well. But they were so <laughs> strange <laughs> that I, uh, I got an insight of that world at that moment. And uh, I, I think this is the moment I really realized how... Um, how real are classes, even if we have a democratic country, but as it is everywhere. We have to fight for egalitarianism. It's a fight. Yeah. It's not a statement. So, yeah. I mentioned before that Paloma has decided that she's going to kill herself at the age of 13 rather than let her life deteriorate into mediocrity. That is a very radical, very subversive <laughs> message. And in a sense, Muriel, it's also quite a a provocatively dangerous thing to present us with a little girl who is contemplating death rather than life just going on in its own banal way. Yes, but as you may be, I was not aware of what I was doing. No, but mostly we, we all, I think, as children had to face melancholy, uh, suffering, uh, questioning about things we wouldn't understand. I don't know any family who didn't have to face a challenge or difficulties. Or, so I guess this is quite uh, normal. Well, this is the existential crisis that <laughs> I didn't have, but obviously you did. <laughs> I had it late, actually. Yeah, late. But I'm... And of course, the other thing that's changed since you wrote The um, Elegance of the Hedgehog is that the very nature of this um, character, René, the concierge, <laughs> has disappeared from Parisian life because now with the automated um, door codes... Uh, people gain access to the building without um, the, the concierge letting them in. And so, in fact, that role has just vanished, hasn't and, it? And because they don't want to pay a concierge, no? because it makes some, uh, it spares some uh, costs. Yes, it seems that I am designed to write about dying worlds. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's not only a joke. It is true. And maybe, uh, maybe this is... Maybe this is the very purpose of uh, literature, to maintain what is dying and to keep the memory of what we have been or what our ancestors have been when they, when they, they were living their lives. And there are, there are one, uh, one novel I like very much, an English, uh, an American novel that everybody knows, which is Gone with the Wind. Mm. And I, I, I read it when I was very young. I didn't understand anything. Uh, 
I was just fascinated by Scarlet and her dresses and uh, and uh, the love stories and the romance and uh, and Red because I had seen the movie and I was in love with uh, uh, Clark Gable. But I really, but I remember I already got a sense of what it was about uh, the the picture of a dying world mm. and uh, the the. All the thinking that goes with understanding that everything is destined to die, but that we have a um, sort of duty of testifying about what has died, because this is what makes us human. And I like the way Nietzsche does this, because it not only says what it has been, but it proposes a vision of what it has been and what it should become. So... Yes, this is why I think it's I'm spooky because we didn't talk about this, but that is my favourite book from yes, really? just about all time. Even though now it's derided as politically incorrect for very obvious yes. reasons, but I still love Scarlet and her dresses. Politically so, incorrect, <laughs> it is. It's but very, it's a, very it's politically incorrect. We'll talk about that some other time. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's a masterpiece of intelligence and of uh, yes. Now, okay. when um, <laughs> the elegance of the hedgehog came out. It sold 12 copies in the first week. It went on to sell 30 million? No, no it was, sorry, 6 million. It's 6 million copies, and it was translated Enough. into over 30 languages and also made into a film. Was that um, jump from the week one with the 12 copies to this extraordinary phenomenon that the book became? How did you navigate that? Personally, how did you understand it, or did you not try to understand it? No, this is exactly this. I didn't try to understand, because it would be ruinous to try to understand this, and I don't want to ask myself why it happened this way. I'm grateful. It has changed my life forever. It has given me time, which is the most incredible luxury. And now I can write all the time and take care of my people. And this is all I want in life, to write, to travel, and to know. And now I can afford it full time, which is not bad. Okay, but, but when you say that, there is actually another sort of truth underneath that, I think, which is that um, I completely understand you not wanting to, to um, try and understand the phenomenon that the book became, because, in fact, no one in publishing could understand the phenomenon. Um, But when you say that it gave you all these gifts, which it has, for a long time you did not write. And in fact, to some extent, the success of the book was an inhibitor and may have made you afraid of writing. So can you just talk about that Uh long period? Well, I read that in a newspaper. Oh. But it's not true. (laughs) (laughs) Actually... I read somewhere, I don't read, because I, usually I don't read reviews, or, but I read an article a quite a long time ago saying that for years I had lost the desire to write, but no, no, never. It had, it had already been six years between my first and my second novel, and then after the, the Elegance of the Hedgehog was released, it took me a few years to travel thanks to the book and to meet uh, readers from different countries and to enjoy traveling. So it slowed down the process a bit, but not that much because there were eight years and a half, eight years and a half years between the second and the third book. It's just that I'm slow. 
<laughs> no, really, uh, success doesn't paralyze me. There are other fears that are very, uh, that kind of frighten me and freeze me. And like what? To disappoint myself. Oh. Yes, this is, the, this is the main fear and it doesn't get better with uh, age. I thought wisdom would help me to a bit of wisdom. Mutual wisdom would help me, but it's worse and worse. And it has nothing to do with... Uh, with success. Uh, so I never lost the desire to write. But this is what I was explaining in the beginning. I need to meet a character. Mm-hmm. And for that, I need to have an evolution in my own life and to be able to meet someone else and to, to be out of my comfort zone and to jump from the cliff because I met a little girl that I love and, who I love and that I would like to spend uh, time with uh, her and to get to know her better. So it takes time. I don't know how writers who write excellently one book a year I don't know how they are doing they are processing faster than I do but it's a matter of processing life so with slow people it takes time <laughs> and I like slowness now with this book with its, with its um, magical themes uh, and this presence of elves it's very tempting to read this book as magical realism mm-hmm or to read it as um, a contemporary fairy tale, or to think of it as a fable. And I've seen in interviews that you've given that you do not think of this book as a fable or as a fairy tale, and that you do not think of yourself as a writer of magical realism. No, not at all. <laughs> so. But, well, it, of course I'm borrowing elements from all these genres. Mm-hmm. Of course I am, because I read a lot of different books in my life and I like the feeling of freedom to borrow from each books each book I loved some elements and to be inspired by the way they, they by their vision of the world and of human beings so uh, the feeling I had is that when I was writing the life of Angst I was feeling completely free to do whatever I wanted and there are a lot of different inspirations. This is why I, I don't deny that it had an influence, but I find it a bit strange to say, oh, it's a fairy tale or fantastic, but it's not. It's a lot of things together. What I wanted, what I knew I wanted, was to write a much more meditative, poetic book uh, than what I had done previously, and that I was calling for more poetry and for more slowness and meditation and for nature but also that I wanted to include some realistic elements because half of the book is set in a farm with a handle of Hamburg and braver farmers and they live in the farm and they eat and they, they, they have this life that you have in the countryside when you are a Hamburg farmer. So there were a lot of, uh, a lot of sources of inspiration and uh, of course there are eggs, so I have to admit it makes it a bit... Um, a bit unrealistic. <laughs> but I tried, really, I tried to mix everything together, just uh, following the inspiration and this call for poetry that I had so strongly. Mm. I'm going to hand over to you in a moment because I'm sure that you've got questions for Muriel and you've seen the video about asking questions <laughs> and not making statements. But um, just before um, I finish and, and open to you, um, the book is, um, is very celebratory of, of beauty in a very heightened way that's very intoxicating to read. 
But there is a war on the horizon. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a sense of apocalypse. There is a sort of climactic storm coming. There's a war, so there's a very great sense of the stakes being high, of dread, of danger. So philosophically, Muriel, I have to ask you, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? <laughs> and it's not that I don't want to answer. I think I'm writing fictions to, uh, to decide if I am optimistic or pessimistic, and I'm oscillating between both all the time. So the topic of war is, of course, very present in the book because it ends with the first battle of the war, and the second volume will be about the war. Uh, no wonder that um, it's not by chance that I love so much Gone with the Wind, but also War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, because I'm fascinated by the way human beings can be caught in something as terrible as a war and how they react and the way they, they, they live with that. And so in this first volume, I wanted to get to know them before they will be caught in the war. And uh, so, well, I think I'm both. Because if you look at human history, you see two things. Obviously, wars all the time, destruction, uh, the impulse to destroy, to possess, to, to, to kill. And also you can see paintings on the walls of a cavern, cave. Uh, of a cave, uh, that ages ago I've been, have been painted by someone who was probably not wearing a silky dress <laughs> and who was having very hard life and who decided to represent in a beautiful way what he was experiencing. So I think we are living in between these two, and it's very trivial what I'm saying, but between these two, these two poems, the call for beauty, poetry, harmony, and the call which is within human nature for destruction, war, and so war and peace. Yeah, I think Mostly. most of us probably oscillate between optimism and pessimism every day, one way or another. I'm yeah. seeing some nodding. Okay, so we have some microphones strategically placed. Um, if you would like to ask Muriel a question, you can either, if you don't want to go to the microphone, this room's kind of intimate, the acoustic's beautiful, you can just ask the question without going to the mic, or if you're feeling bold... You can go to the microphone. Um, don't forget also that uh, Muriel is going to be signing copies of her book uh, in the Western foyer after this session, and we already have a question. Um, I'm interested, we've heard a bit about your um, uh, philosophical inspirations or mentors. Uh, what about your um, fictitious ones? Which novelists are you attracted to or been inspired by? Is there a specific genre also that you draw from? Okay. So, uh, well, I already talked about uh, War and Peace and Gone with the Wind, but of course I've read a bit more than uh, <laughs> these two books. Uh, I think I've been a very eclectic reader. When I was young, I would read whatever I could uh, get. Uh, I think I read a lot of things I couldn't understand, for one very reason, the intoxication of language. And I've loved it since the beginning. So even if I couldn't understand and even less explain, I was mesmerized by, the, by French language and by the beauty of it. So I read really in a very large span of genres. And of, uh, but mostly I've been influenced by the uh, French writers, 
because of the language of the 18th century and 19th century, because it's the moment French, French is at its uh, peak. Yes. And, and, and it's, um, it's always an uh, ecstasy for me to read over some books of that period, whatever they are, even if I'm not interested in the topic, just for the music of language, for the refinement of it, for the elegance it has in there. Uh, and uh, then I was very influenced also by a lot of French writers who would be called writers of the earth. Uh, they talk about humble farmers, they talk about uh, uh, dealing with uh, nature. They, so I don't know if their names will be familiar to you, but uh, including it includes Jean Giono, who's uh, one, for me one of the greatest French writers. Because in each of his texts, and they are always set in nature in the countryside with farmers, with peasants, with people from, not from the cities, but it is extremely realistic. And at the same time, you cannot find one single sentence which is not a poem. Mm -hmm. And it reads very easily, but at the same time, it's high beauty. So I love him for that reason, and also Henri Vincenot, who's not very famous, but in Burgundy I used to live in the village next to the one where he used to live, and who is a wonderful writer describing his life in Burgundy and his grandmothers, and the grandmothers of my book, because there are a few grannies who are dealing with medicinal plants and with uh, nature as a healer. Uh, they come from uh, his, uh, his books. But of course, as I'm French, you won't be surprised that my masters are Flaubert and Proust. Because they, I don't know how they do this, because they put together intelligence and writing, thinking and fiction, which are two different things. And when you put them together, you have a... Did I answer? Yes. <laughs> I think so. Uh, yes, we've got a question from the gentleman in the front. I'll repeat your question. Some of us haven't read Better. So this was a question about whether there are any novels of French film, uh, sorry, films of French novels which have done better, uh, have, have been more successful, more satisfying than, than the novel that they were based on. No, better I, no. But, but when, when a, a film is adapted from a book and it leads to a very original and beautiful uh, film, then I think it's quite equal. And there is one that I like very much, though it is one of my favorite books of all times for the style and for the intelligence. It's the Liaison Dangereuse. Yeah. The Dangerous... Uh, Say it in French. <laughs> Les Liaisons Dangereuses by Coderno de Laclos, which is uh, this... Uh, uh, this amazing book with letters and uh, characters that are so extraordinary and a language that is the most beautiful ever you can find if you read French. And there was uh, a few adaptations, one by Milos Forman, which was a bit, no, I didn't like it that much, and one by Stephen Frears mm. with uh, Glenn Close, I think, and, and uh, John Mankovich and Yuma yeah. uh, Thurman. And it's, it's good. <laughs> it's really good. Okay, there's another question from the front row. We're doing well in the front here. Okay, go for it. Uh, can you talk about uh, political inheritance? 
and you really felt often those people who just kind of sparked in people in your life. So the question was, how many of Muriel's characters might come from real life as opposed to coming from imagination? So what I know most, and this is probably why I'm writing fictions and not self-fictions or writing about me, or there are beautiful texts uh, about the, the writers themselves, is that I like this distortion, and I like not to know what I'm doing, what I'm putting from myself, because this is the best way to take within yourself and to have access to a layer of yourself you didn't know. And when it's over, it's not that you understand who is who, it's completely mixed, but then you understand a bit more about yourself. So I'm never aware of what I borrow to real life. Probably it's like in dreams, where uh, one character of the dream can be five or six people together. Mm. And it expresses, of course, a... Uh, uh, a side of your personality. But I don't want to know how it happens. <laughs> I want to stay unconscious of a lot of things because this is the way you learn most about yourself. Because you, you really cherish mystery, don't you? You, you want that mystery when it, to stay. I think we have to adapt that, to the fact that many things are so mysterious. Yes. Yeah. Any question? Yes. Yes. Would you like to go to the microphone because it's quite close to you, really? Yeah, <laughs> I have got a cold sign, of course. The little girl you were in the woods, what sort of conversation would you have with her today? Mm. <laughs> I, I guess everybody heard, of course. I was waiting for... <laughs> I'm very sorry. Uh, I, I exactly know what I would tell her. I would tell her to be brave, because courage is the most... Uh, amazing quality and each morning I hope I will have some to be brave I was very scared by a lot of things when I was a, a child and like what? oh life <laughs> <laughs> no and it, it's my personal history but I was uh, uh, yes I was not very confident on what would be my life and uh, now I am and I would just tell her to be, to be brave, that she can be brave and that everything will go better. Is that why the, um, there's, a, there's a motto that you quote in Spanish um, at the end of the first section of the book, which is Mantendré Siempre, yes. which is translated um, at the foot of the pages, I will maintain. Actually, it's misspelled, but anyway. I will maintain. Uh, really? Which, Yeah, I will maintain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyway, never mind. Um, <laughs> but, um, but happens. <laughs> I wondered whether that, what that really meant was I will endure. No, 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 I don't think so, because, well, actually, this is a translation, because the little girl, Maria, she comes from Spain, we don't know why, but it is the Spanish translation of the motto of the, uh, the royal family of the Netherlands. And they have this motto in French, Je maintiendrai, which you can translate in English with uh, I will maintain, and in Spanish, like you said. And so, Je maintiendrai, I will maintain, this is the motto of the, the princes of Orange, 
the, the, the royal family of the Netherlands, I've always been fascinated by that because I wouldn't maintain, but what? Mm. What are you going to maintain? And when I was younger, when I was a child, I remember my grandfather told me about this motto, and I was thinking, but it, it, needs, it needs a compliment. I will maintain something. But then I understood that this is a beautiful expression because we all want to maintain something. And I think life is about maintaining what we believe most in. And it, we, we meet a lot of difficulties, but I think it's a very pure and beautiful way to say that whatever we might experience, we keep the cape. So I like it. Well, that is a perfect note, I think, on which to end our conversation. We all look forward to volume two. No pressure, but hurry up. <laughs> well, it will be faster because once you met the characters, then everything is easier. Good, good. We look forward to that. Please join me in thanking Muriel. Thank you.